You are listening to Beyond the Verse, a Star Citizen podcast. A show dedicated to Cloud Imperium games, Star Citizen and Squadron 42. Whether you fight, explore, unite, and or trade, we bring you news, updates, interviews, reviews, and analysis. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a pour of Radagast, and join us as we go Beyond the Verse. Launch sequence activated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 18 of Beyond the Verse Star Citizen podcast with your host, Solace. I hope this finds everybody well. Thank you again for welcoming us into wherever you're listening. Again, I always say like at the gym, driving when you're traveling, the purpose of this is a podcast to bring the news, any updates, any commentary straight to you where you don't necessarily have to be in front of your computer to get it. So we have a lot of new listeners since last week. We were blessed to have Blasphemous, the content creator on our show in episode 17. Uh, And we discussed some pretty um, hotly debated topics, right? Between griefing and adversity. Um, And we grew a lot, a lot of viewing, uh, a lot of viewership, a lot of uh, followers and subscribers. So first off, welcome in. Thank you so much. Um, Hope to have kept you into episode 18. Um, But for those individuals, uh, actually for the entire community, we are growing at a, a, a pace or a rate that I haven't seen in my personal time in six years of content creation, really eight years of content creation. So I did something in the last six days that I'm, I'm kind of proud about. And I want to just share with y'all before we get into the meat of this podcast, um, we're bringing you merch. Yeah, we're, we're extending the brand uh, and we're getting we're getting some pretty fun stuff created. Um, it is beyond the verse. It is going to be the Star Citizen podcast. We're going to start off small with like T-shirts. Um, but if you are following us over on the YouTubes, let me show you real quick what we're talking about. Uh, I'm going to share my screen and here you go. So this is Zazzle. Shout out to Zazzle. I've used them before in the past. Um, but here we go. We're going to have t-shirts made. Um, for right now, it's going to be for me and some of the organizations, uh, organization members that are going to be going to CitizenCon. Uh, but this will branch out as general merch for um, you, the listener, if this interests you or is, if this is something that you want to help support the show with. Um, but I love their product. Um, we went for the higher end of their t-shirts, so good quality. Uh, I can't wait to see this prototype when it arrives uh, middle to late part of of next week. So yeah, so that's super exciting from a, a content creation piece. Um, yeah, let's let's get into this last week uh, from from an inside Star Citizen perspective. And before we get into the actual article that came out on Monday, um, I do I do want to talk about like I guess the last couple of days. Um, so there I was. Knowing that 320 is right around the corner, which will get rid of Port Olisar, I decided, actually it was earlier today, I decided I'm going to fly my Carrick 
with the Pisces and the garage and the Ursa Rover, right? In that garage, I'm gonna fly over and make it a big to-do. I'm gonna go to Port Olisar and I'm gonna do some screenshots and some videos. It's gonna be phenomenal. And then Star Citizen happened. <laughs> um, I got interdicted, so I'm in Hurston. I got interdicted between Hurston and uh, Crusader. And if you are aware of the Carrick, you, you can't really solo fly that ship. Um, you can't you can't actually shoot any weapon systems from the solo pilot seat. And so I start, I get interdicted, I start getting shot at, so I'm, I'm literally holding down Y to get out of the seat, I'm running to my Pisces, my medical Pisces, it's not even the expedition or the regular, it's, it's the medical Pisces. I run to that hangar, I get in it, I fly up, uh, and I start taking care of the three, um, the three pirates. Well, long story short, they blow up my Carrick. That's that's fine. Whatever, lifetime insurance, which it doesn't matter in this current moment. Anyways, they blow up my Carrick, um, and then I end up, I take two of the three out. I get the third down pretty well, like low armor, low shields, and they end up blowing me up. So here I am, dead. I'm having to go back to Lauraville and, like, spawn. So I get into my 400i, and I'm like, hey, second time's... The charm. I told you on episode 17, I suck at at all things dogfighting. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get in my 400. I, um, I'm going to see if I have any better luck. And I did. I was able to actually get into Port Olisar. But then this happened. <laughs> I uh, tweeted a video and put it on TikTok and YouTube shorts. And it's actually getting, uh, it's actually getting quite a lot of hits. So let me... Let me pull this up and kind of walk you through this whole, this whole uh, this whole experience. So, sharing my screen for those of you on YouTube. So here we go. Let me just back this guy up. Make this full screen. Okay. All right. All right. So first off, let me just pause this. So here we are. Uh, I'm flying by 400i. There's Port Olisar in all of its beauty, and I'm like, all right, this is gonna be great. I'm gonna do some pretty cool panning. I'm gonna like move around and show everything because this is it. I'm not going back to Port Olisar ever again, right? 320 is gonna launch at some point in the next couple of weeks, um, and this won't be here, right? Seraphim will be here, so. Here we go. So I'm going to go ahead and play. Um, so I'm flying around. This is 500 times speed, by the way. So I edited it, made it, you know, a lot faster than what you would normally see. So it's very beautiful. You got Crusader in the background. You got sun reflecting and refracting on everything. Super beautiful, right? All right, let me just pause this. I get the good idea. Like, hey, I'm going to I'm going to fly through the rings because those are unique, right? No other uh orbital station has rings to fly through so let me go ahead and just fly through this and experience the glory that is port olisar and let me just kind of play this video and, and just i'll show you i'll show you what happens here we go yep oh there goes my left wing and chaos ensues yep yep and my ass is dead Okay, so <laughs> uh, this good idea fairy, you know, wanting to do something great to like memorialize Port Olasar, and somehow, some way, somebody or something destroyed my left wing, and I go through this mass 
spiral, this mass chaos. Now, word of the wise, if you start losing control over your ship and like that happens, hold down shift, which is your thrusters, and then X. Shift and X. So X is like your anti-flying. It's like your anti-thrusters. So it, it'll make you stop where you're going. So shift, X, hold that down, and you can actually regain control of a very like crazy ship. So I was able to do that. I actually EVA'd out and flew around to uh, one of the, the landing pads and was able to actually get into Port Olisar and, and whatever. But I just, I think that's appropriate. It's appropriate for many reasons. Uh, it's Port Olisar. Like, that's <laughs> that's Port Olisar. Um, it's always been this, like, this hub for PvP, at least in my experience in this last year. It's always been this place. Um, it doesn't have, like, a, a medical bay to, like, you know, rejuvenate your, your, your health or anything. So, like, you're already going there at risk. But it always seemed to be... Um, risky because of pvp and crusaders usually where a lot of that that action happens so i just thought that was a fun story to kind of get the podcast going break the ice uh, but i got star citizened pretty pr- pretty well <laughs> uh, the only other thing that i wanted to to kind of brief or bring into the community um i did get the uh, the model the carrick model from jrdf i ended up starting it uh, this past weekend and made some progress on it as you can see on stream so it's not painted it's literally just kind of disassembled from the the anchors Uh, it's all put together but it needs painting now but as you can see it's pretty awesome I actually love the detail um, of each of the pieces it was pretty easy to put together but I did have some uh, I did have some casualties I had a turret that lost a couple of its barrels. <laughs> uh, that's unfortunate. But luckily, you just you choose the other sets and you're, you're fine. It's just not angled, you know, the right way or a certain way. Um, and then the other piece, uh, this was easy to fix, but one of the wings, right? So this guy right here, one of these wings, the tips broke off in the disassembling process, right? So you have to, like, snap them off of a base in order to build. And unfortunately in the breaking process it actually snapped one of the corners but that's pretty easy you just get you know some cement glue super glue and put it together and you're you're good to go but man you already you're already nervous because it's a 250 dollars model um you have these high hopes of putting led lights in it and making it part of a content creator like background and the first step you're already breaking crap so that was uh that was humbling to say the least i'm not used to 3d printing models so Okay, we're 12 minutes into the show. I think I think we should go ahead and get into this week in Star Citizen. So here we go. This has been a pretty interesting week, and I say that because we've had two surprises. We've had a mission spotlight that dropped um, either earlier today or yesterday. I think it was I think it's today. Uh, mission spotlight dropped, which is super interesting. It's it's the first of its kind. So we'll go through that surprise, and then the other surprise uh, comes with the roadmap roundup. There's a ship that no one expected to um, to be showing up in 320. So we'll get to that. But here we go. Happy Monday, everyone. This is straight from the com link. So that's why it says Monday. Last week, we announced that we're teaming up with Atmo Esports to bring the biggest 2v2 dogfighting tournament in the verse to CitizenCon 2953. That's right, folks. 
You can experience the toughest of the tough duke it out in fight or flight straight from the show floor at CitizenCon with live commentary. Participant applications are now closed, but you can still grab CitizenCon tickets to witness this spectacle in person. Speaking of CitizenCon, we're giving you a heads up that community booth applications are closing soon, which is July 31st. So don't miss out on your chance to showcase your organization or community. There's no better way to recruit and showcase what makes your group great. And remember, there's no limit to what your booth can entail. Whether you want to recruit for your org, roleplay a character, or champion a cause, this is your chance to leave your mark on the big event. Check out this post for more details. You have until July 31st to sign up. For those of you who can't wait until CitizenCon to hang out with other enthusiasts in the flesh, we hear that there will be a bar citizen happening all this weekend from coast to coast in the United States of America. Don't forget, if you're organizing an event or just looking for one to attend in your vicinity, you'll find everything you need at barcitizen.sc. Now let's see what's going on this week. This Tuesday, the narrative team brings us the latest monthly Galactopedia update, which we will actually save for the last part of this podcast. Wednesday, we'll see the publish of our bi-weekly roadmap update and the complimentary roadmap roundup. This Thursday on Inside Star Citizen, we're catching up with our gameplay feature team to take a look at the early prototype of the next iteration of Salvage, called Munching. On Friday, there will be no Star Citizen Live, but you'll see the weekly RSI newsletter delivered to your inbox. Also, this is the final week of Foundation Festival 2953 and your last chance to earn some sweet rewards exclusive to the event. Visit the Foundation Festival Hub for more details and jump in before the event ends on July 31st. Fly low and fly fast. Frasia Venities. Venities, Venities, Venaris. I would love to be corrected. I suck at names, and I suck at the Xi'an language, as we'll find out during the Galactopedia read. So, <laughs> uh, anywho, and then it goes through, it goes through the weekly community content schedule, which we just recapped. Um, but again, some interesting things that weren't actually on. Uh, this week in Star Citizen, like I said, there was a mission spotlight that dropped. Super interesting. So let's get into the roadmap roundup. Now uh, we're at 16 minutes and we do have a lot to do. I, I do want to actually watch the Inside Star Citizen video and give kind of a reaction piece uh, like we did a couple episodes ago that was received really well. And I, I want to make sure I uh, I'm receptive to that feedback. So we're going to watch the Inside Star Citizen. And then the Galactopedia, of course, is like 21 articles, one full length and 20 short length. And we are actually going to go through each one. I think it's great intel and it's a great conversation. So let's get into the roadmap roundup. I'm going to go back to sharing my screen. Here we go. So this is the release view. Uh, this is the kind of the meat um, of what happened this last patch, 319. That was obviously dropped May 16th, 2023. We still don't have a date for when 320 is dropping, but we do have some changes in the Intel. And what I usually like doing is going to the roundup first, and then we'll come back to this page and show the actual uh, cards. So here we go, roadmap roundup. 
Let's go. Progress tracker. The following deliverables have been added to the progress tracker. A lot of new missions. And some of this is new. Some of this was not in previous progress trackers, right? New missions. Steal evidence. A criminal mission type where players are tasked with infiltrating security post Korea and stealing files from Crusader security for a hefty payout. I actually like this. Uh, I like this because it puts another reason to go to security post Korea. We already know it's it's being added to Arena Commander, so it's going to be this this very important um, kind of a POI, a point of interest. It's going to be this really important piece so let's let's put more in it besides just going and clearing your crime stat so i think having some more missions that bring us to this very well-known very popular location is going to also add another layer of pvp to it right so if you want to steal evidence which is a pve mission but if you want to steal evidence you better bring your best pvp ship right you should not be taking your carrick as a solo pilot <laughs> uh, to this mission, right? I'm still gonna say the 325 Alpha is your best bet in this current moment, uh, but I am completely biased, to say the least, with Origin. New missions, cargo hauling. Making use of the freight elevators feature, this mission type will have players hauling large quantities of cargo to earn both AUEC and reputation. This goes hand in hand with the whole C. So the whole C was, it's been committed for quite some time now. That is happening in 320. We knew that that ship was going to drop. So this is perfect. This means that you can take, again, those, those massive like Connex or 18 wheeler trailers and you can put them on your whole C. Right, that's a loose description, but you can put those large cargo um, containers and actually use the whole sea for what it's worth. I still have questions. I, I still want to know about landing gear. I still want to know about its capabilities of flying around and maneuverability and all of that. Right, I, I want to see it, live it, and breathe it. Um, but having the new mission come out with it uh, for cargo hauling makes, makes perfect sense. New missions, still recover cargo. Still recover cargo missions will see players recovering and or stealing cargo from both derelict and active ships, then hauling the cargo to its intended destination. Pretty straightforward there. New missions, restoration contracts. Utilizing the repair functionality of the multi-tool salvage attachment, players are tasked to restore ships from bow to stern, patching up the hull, replacing missing or faulty internal components. It's actually pretty cool. And replacing weapon loadouts in new salvage yard locations. That's actually really cool. I've never heard it called restoration contracts before, but it kind of sounds it sounds like those like um like the 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 criminal salvage missions where you're having to like strip paint off the side of the ships it's almost kind of like that in my mind where you're having to replace um like they said uh components right um i, I like the idea that it's kind of like reversed salvaging in a way now here's also something that's new at least new since i've been covering these roadmap roundups there's perks now with reputation and so there's shop discounts hostility and sandbox triggers all 
basically perks of the reputation that you're gaining when you do these missions. So let's go through each one real quick, but this is the first time that I am seeing reputation as a perk. So let's cover shop discounts. Players will have the ability to receive discounts in certain shops based on their reputation with affiliated organizations. Awesome. Hostility. Players will encounter AI that are either friendly or hostile based on their reputation with the organization the AI belong to. This also includes different friendly fire thresholds and defense responses. Sandbox triggers. This feature will allow for players to have their reputation increase or decrease with organizations based on their actions in the persistent universe. Separate from missions, this in turn will either allow or prevent players from accepting missions for particular organizations. I love it, honestly. I, these reputation perks or additional impacts that influence your game, um, it makes it matter. It makes the missions that you choose and pursue matter. It's not like this random, hey, let's go do X, Y, Z because you're in a mood to do it. Um, it gives a purpose. It gives you direction on you know which reputations you want to pursue. Now, unfortunately, my mind immediately goes to like World of Warcraft where you have, I think at this point, you have like hundreds and hundreds of reputations that you have to foster in order to get your best in slot gear. Now, I do not want, I do not want that to become something for Star Citizen where you, you can't have access to your ship's best turret or your best quantum drive because you don't have the reputation with them. I agree with the shop discounts, I agree with like it being a cheaper price if you have a good reputation with the seller or the vendor, but making it like like gating it, if you gate it, uh, it, it I think it destroys parts of the game, right? So shop discounts, great. Gating it where you can't access the same assets. Um, I think that's where I personally would draw the line, but my initial reaction to reputation, but the rest of it looks beautiful. I love it. That's that's where we should be. It's where we should be going. Uh, and if you're watching my screen, the surprise was just ruined for you. But here we go. <laughs> Release view. The first one: physicalized cargo updates. Adding new functionality to accommodate the release of the Misk Hole C. This includes both automated cargo loading at Leo stations as well as SCU containers up to 32 SCU. Okay, um, I don't think that that's necessarily new, but what is new? Now, let me preface this and say that it, it's stating alpha 3.20.x. That doesn't mean that when 3.20 drops, you're gonna have access to the ship. It just means in the umbrella of 3.20, at some point, we will have access to the following ship. Here we go. The Crusader A1 Spirit, which is why this episode of Beyond the Verse Star Citizen podcast is called Spirit. Surprise, surprise. No one knew that the A1, which is the bomber version, um, was going to be introduced into the game. But sure enough, reading from the article, building, balancing, and implementing Crusader Industries' light bomber, the A1 Spirit, into the game. That is, that's phenomenal another ship so the whole sea 
and the Crusader A1 Spirit coming out in 320. Love it. I absolutely love it. Now here is, um, it's not even like a bad response to it, but it's like this, maybe like a question I have. With all of the physicalization of cargo and all the updates to cargo, I'm actually surprised that it's not the C1 spirit, which is their container version or logistics version of the spirit. So I would love to hear from CIG. Um, and I might actually reach out to CIG to, to have the question or to ask the question. Um, but why not the C1? I, E1, whatever. So the, the Echo 1 is like the luxury model. Usually the luxury models are postponed um, or the last to launch of a ship line because it requires new assets, right? You can't just copy and paste existing assets, which is what we saw last week in the Inside Star Citizen. You can't just reuse the same assets. You have to go in and make the luxury or the, the passenger aspect um, unique to every single ship. So, and I don't think Crusader has a, a luxury ship yet. So it's not like the origin design language that you could just copy and paste. It's the Crusader design language. And again, I don't, know of a luxury version of of a crusader ship anyways so i'm curious about the c1 but great great news super exciting can't wait to find out more let's keep moving <clears throat> the last piece of this roadmap roundup the new crusader platforms new missions retrieve consignment if you've been listening to this podcast, we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now, a couple episodes, nothing new here. Retrieve Consignment is going to be a fun, fun, fun mission set. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to flying the whole sea. Let's actually go back and look at the re release view at this time. So again, 319 launched May 16th, 320. We don't have a date yet, but here's your two locations. Seraphim Station, excuse me. Seraphim Station, it is replacing Port Olisar. Um, it's going to be above Orison. It's going to be larger. It's going to have all the amenities. That's committed. That's happening. That is coming out in 320. Because of this, I'm probably going to make, actually, I will be making my new home Crusader because I want to be part of the Seraphim Station. I want to kind of just live and breathe that. Uh, and I think it's a better system. Um, <laughs> I know there's a couple of friends of mine who are going to kill me. Uh, it's a better system than Hurston. Just saying. <laughs> Tentatively, the new Crusader platform. So that's still marked as tentative, but that could be happening. So there's your two locations. Let's look at the 11 gameplays. Most of this is Arena Commander, but here's your new missions, Retrieve Consignment, Arena Commander, Front End Update, which is like your user interface when you first get in your experience, the player experience that you're going to have. Uh, Arena Commander, New Race Tracks, Arena Commander, New Horizon Speedway Rework, Arena Commander, New Dogfighting Map, Jericho Station, which, oh my gosh, um, quick backstory on Jericho Station. So Xeno Threat, Xenothreat drops, Xenothreat's happening. My brother and I are flying around for the first time doing Xenothreat, uh, and we saw this massive, massive station. And yeah, it's called Jericho Station, but we flew around it. We were, you know, we got out and EVA'd, and I'm like, what is this? I had no idea that it existed or the lore behind it. So that discovery that my brother and I had, um, those are like the moments that you don't get back. 
we will never again have that experience of just kind of stumbling upon Jericho station. But it was so cool to see this massive, massive station, um, find out on the side of it, it's INS Jericho going into Galactopedia and the comm links uh, and researching what INS Jericho was, um, is just a really awesome, awesome experience that we had, especially for somebody who lives and breathes, you know, for lore. I digress, but I think that's a really cool story. And now seeing it coming into like a dogfighting map in Arena Commander, absolutely love it. Love to see it. Arena Commander, new elimination map, Echo 11. Arena Commander, experimental game modes. That's going to be important. Um, real quick, I think that's the solution to last week's interview that we had with Blasphemous, right? The 30 versus 30 versus 30 tank issue that happened on that Saturday. I think this, the experimental game mode, that's the solution in my opinion, uh, is setting the left and right limits, setting who can be in the audience size or spectator modes or what's going to be allowed, what's not allowed. I, this is how you do a content creation event. Now it sucks because I want to see it in the PU for all the reasons we mentioned. I want to be able to fly a whole C or a whole E and have advertisements on the side. Like I, I, I like the idea of a persistent universe world um, and doing that kind of spectation or spectator loop. Um, I, unfortunately, I think Arena Commander is gonna be the right answer, at least initially. Arena Commander, new dog fighting map, winner's circle. Let's keep going. Arena Commander, new map, security post Korea. There you go. Uh, which is interesting because you're going to be fighting the actual station itself. So you're going to be taking out turrets and taking out hard points. Super exciting. Something unique. Uh, new mission, salvage contracts, cover up. Uh, tentative, physicalized cargo updates. And that's it for gameplay. Last but not least, three entries for ships and vehicles. Committed. Wheeled vehicle and handling improvements, which is phenomenal. If you've been listening to the last couple episodes, you know one of my favorite loops is to land like an MSR or a Phoenix um, far away from a bunker, like 15 to 2,000 clicks, uh, and then riding the rest of the way in an Ursa Rover or my Lynx. But doing so is a nightmare. <laughs> it is so hard to control your ground vehicle going from your ship to the bunker. A small little pebble on the ground makes you fly across the map. It's crazy. So I would love to see, I can't wait to see the wheeled vehicle handling improvements. Here's the misc hole C. There you go. It's one step closer to the whole D and the whole E, Delta and Echo. And last but not least, we already talked about the Crusader A1 Spirit. So there you go. A lot to unpack there in the roadmap roundup. Um, it is, it is insane. And while we're transitioning, let's go to chat real quick. Uh, Groza, I see Raffmaster23. Hey, man, uh, welcome to the uh, welcome to the podcast. And a very, 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 very good friend of mine, Conif. Uh, man, welcome. Conif has been with us since episode one. We actually had Conif on uh, and co-hosted that uh, that first episode. So I hope this finds you well, each one of you. Thanks for joining. And again, we are live on YouTube on Thursday nights, 8 p.m. U.S. Central. But again, the main purpose of this production is podcast for replay and on your podcasting platform. Okay, back to surprises. All right, so earlier today, Mission Spotlight. 
there was no intel there was no sneak peek or teaser that this was going to drop um it it honestly hit uh it hit my uh what was i saw where did i see it first i think i was in spectrum and i was talking with a friend of mine um from content creation i was talking with a friend of mine on spectrum and they were like hey did you check out this mission spotlight no click the link came over here and now you're seeing it on your screen as a screen share so here we go uh real quick i'm gonna summarize it um, but it's this idea of bringing the community up to speed or sharing kind of a, a general knowledge on missions that you might not know exist, right? Or how to access those missions. And let me tell you a little bit of a testimony. Um, there have been times that I have gone on to a content creator stream, which I've been following a lot of you on Twitch lately. Um, it's, it's been good to see each one of you. Uh, but I've, I'm, I've been watching them do a mission i'm like where first off where the heck are you i don't recognize the surroundings and then what are you doing i'm seeing things happen on the screen that are not your typical box missions or bounty or mercenary missions um, so this is going to be a really awesome tool i think it's gonna be a really awesome tool to kind of share that hey play this in this way in this area for this purpose and you can unlock these experiences so I already see a point. I already see a benefit to doing um, something like this. So let's get into the page. Let's get into the whys. Um, I won't do this every time that there's a mission spotlight drop, but because this is the very first one, I personally see value in it. So here we go. Mission spotlight. Tackle the most thrilling missions in the verse. Whether you're putting your life on the line for the good of humanity or keeping the wheels of commerce rolling, Star Citizen is brimming with immersive missions that let you make your mark on the universe. Over the next few months, we're spotlighting some of our favorite contracts and giving everyone who attempts them the chance to win ships perfectly suited to the challenges of the verse. First up, outlaws are running amok in a stolen fleet of deadly combat ships. Restore the peace in the all-action Arlington Bounty. So stopping there, never heard of Arlington Bounty. Never heard of it. Now, I will also be honest with you. Most of the missions I take on are in the general tab. Not the personal tab, but the general tab. It's safe. It's not, it's not going to give me crime stats, right? It's easy to get in and get out and do your mission. Um, most of this is you're going to you're, you're going to see most of this is in the personal tab. It's riskier. Maybe they take longer to do um, like the Eckert mission line is it, it takes a while to complete the Vaughn. The Vaughn mission line takes longer to complete. But here's the deal. Just quickly. The general missions are exactly that. They're they're missions for the general public. Hey, I need somebody, I need, I need literally anybody to do this one mission. Take this one box, deliver it to this other location. Don't care who it is, make it happen. General tab. The personal tab is, hey, Solus from Soul Provision, I need you to go and do this mission. It's kind of the story mode, sort of. It's kind of the story mode. Um, that allows you to get into well, the story and it allows you to sit down across from an NPC who talks you through why you're doing what you're doing. Um, I have found the Vaughn missions super interesting, right? Very uh, immersive and engaging. So I, I'm going to, I'm going to gander 
<laughs> that most of this will come from the personal tab. Let's let's continue on. Arlington Bounty. The Arlington gang is wreaking havoc on Stanton in all manner of deadly fighters and gunships. And rumor has it, it's got its hands on a devastating Idris Capital frigate. Which, by the way, can we just can we just launch the Idris? Can it just happen? Can we queue for? Can we launch the Idris P and K? Back to the article. <laughs> Take down Arlington targets, keep the system safe, and reap the rewards of a job well done. Whatever your ability level, it's the ideal way to hone your ship combat and flying skills. Let's keep going. Before you begin, Mercenary Miles Eckert is responsible for many of Stanton's bounty missions, and he only hands them out to pilots he can trust. To get in his good graces, earn your tracker training permit certification from the Bounty Hunters Guild, which is available from the mission manager in your Moby Glass. So that is on the Generals tab, right? Getting started. Once you're certified, it's time to meet Miles. You'll find him at the MNV bar in Lorville, Hurston. Then there's nothing left to do but to gear up, take off, and head to the marker on your star map. Arlington Bounty features seven increasingly difficult missions, with a final flight, a final fight against the fearsome enemy Idris. Take it down to become bounty hunting legend, and don't forget to snap a screenshot for the chance to win a killer-free ship. Now that's super awesome. That's different. Um, Yes, you can play the game, you can get your reputation up, you can earn AUEC to buy these ships. This is an external avenue that the community managers um, are trying to foster that says, look, you're, you're not only are you playing the game, but here's a chance to impact social media, to take a screenshot, a video. I'm sure at some point there'll be a TikTok submission or YouTube short submission, but it's their way of saying, look, another layer of engagement could yield one of three prize ships. And it's actually like, it's like Redeemer, Eclipse, and I can't remember the third one, but some really awesome opportunities. Then it goes through tips and tricks. Uh, the Arlington gang takes no prisoners, so your best bet is to bring a friend or two, or uh, it's even the odds. If it's me, uh, with how much I suck at dogfighting, I need like my whole org. So soul provision, fire up, let's go. Because um, I, I can't, I can't dogfight. <laughs> Back to the article. This is vital in later missions. As the scale of the enemy ships grows substantially, optimize your ship loadout for heavy firepower and high defense. And according to the lead mission designer, the more missiles, the better. <laughs> yes. Check out the ships below for out-of-the-box loadouts. Perfect for trackling trackling or tackling <laughs> the Arlington threat. So when I hear missiles, I'm thinking Eclipse. Give me my my size nine torps uh, and I can take out an Idris pretty easily. Um, that piece is easy. Right now the AI for these capital ships, are they're kind of lame, it's kind of easy. I would not take an uh, Eclipse against like a dogfighter, wouldn't do it. But against a capital ship, absolutely, right? Absolutely. Here's your Arlington Bounty screenshot contest. It's not just the fate of the system at stake. Snap an action-packed screenshot of you and your crew taking on the Arlington Idris for the chance to win the Eclipse, the Redeemer, there you go, and the Arrow. Upload it to the Community Hub or Twitter, which x.com, not to bring up that whole <laughs> that whole conversation. So 
Are we saying tweet now? Are we saying zeet? X eat? I don't know. Anyways, to, to be to be in with a chance to win, read here for the full details and terms. All right. And then they're dropping seven ships. So seven ships to help you out. Uh, here we go. So the Ares Inferno, which more than likely means that the other uh, Ares is also available. But Ares Inferno, uh, this is your ballistic version. The Ion if I'm not mistaken, is your repeater, your laser repeater. Uh, but here you go, the Ares Inferno ballistic version, $250. Ah, man, it's like almost, it's almost like I prepared for this podcast. Here's the, the Ares Ion laser equipped capital ship killer, $250. Uh, here's your arrow for $75. Eclipse for $300, which let me go back to the Eclipse. So first off, B2 Bomber. If you know what a B2 bomber is, here's your here's your B2 bomber in game. Uh, it's a very sleek, very I'm just I'm gonna say it's a very sexy ship. Uh, it's very very well done. It's fun to fly around. Um, but these are your size nine torpedoes. You can one shot you know very high risk target bounties uh, if you do it right. But you've got these massive torpedoes, so beautiful. The Hammerhead is a great organization. Um, it's not a capital ship, but it's a gunship. It's got massive turrets. It's got several, several hard points um, to uh, to man. So I would take your org out in this $725 Hammerhead. Here's the Redeemer. It's a smaller gunship than the Hammerhead, um, but the Redeemer is a phenomenal option for a gunship. I could have told you the Retaliator Bomber was available as well, but this is your next level of the Eclipse, right? So your Aegis Eclipse is your B2 Bomber, super sexy, whatever. This is like an extended, longer version of the B2 Bomber. Um, it still has size 9 torpedoes, but you're going to have more of it. You're going to want to man it with several pilots, not just yourself, or several uh, manpower headcount, not just yourself. I think that's it. Yep, back to the Ares Inferno. So, just a big surprise. Um, just a just a huge surprise. Did not see that coming. No intel. Not like a hey, get ready for next week because we're doing something new. I love it. I I, I think it was a really well done um, presentation and an opportunity for us to get into some of these like PVE missions. All right, uh, so back to chat while we do a uh, it, while we do a a transition into the next segment. Groza, I have an A1 Spirit upgrade. Can't wait. I have the Echo One upgrade, right? So I I went ahead and bought the Echo One. I'm all about the you know luxury, fancy passenger airline airliner kind of mentality. So I can't wait for the Echo One. I also know it's probably not going to be until Q4, if not next year, before I see it. So I'm excited about the A1, super exciting. Go have fun. Um, I, I would love to hear from you. I'm going to live vicariously through you, Groza. So let me know. All right, let's go to our second to last segment. We are going to watch Inside Star Citizen, uh, do a little reaction to it. But this version or this episode of Inside Star Citizen is called Preparing Prototypes. Um, like I said before, let me just go ahead and kind of transition over to sharing my screen, full screen. Pausing that. Um, if you are interested in 
the gaming industry, you need to watch every single one of these episodes of Inside Star Citizen. You don't need to know the ins and outs of what everybody does, but you need to be able to speak the language. Prototypes, um, prototypes are like the the good idea fairies, right? So in a in a studio, you know, you're not always nine to five or I don't know, seven to eight, seven a.m. to eight p.m. You're not always doing, you know, something. You're kind of waiting for other asset creations or other teams to do their work so you can go back and do your own. So there's some downtime. And with that downtime, a lot of developers, publishers, editors, a lot of what they'll do is kind of ideate on on these opportunities um maybe again these good idea fairies that they're wanting to try out and so a prototype is how you get your idea across it's how you show people communicate demonstrate the capability of your idea and what usually happens not to go into the video and spoil any of it but what usually happens is you take existing assets uh and you kind of you tell your story. It's the most ridiculous looking thing because you're using, again, assets from other parts of the production process. Um, but again, you're trying to depict, you're trying to show decision makers, producers, right? You're trying to show these, these senior level leaders what they want to invest their next time, talent, attention, man hours, headcount, etc. right? So, you need to know what prototypes are. It's like pre-white box. So your prototype is your good idea, your good idea fairy. The next step, white box, is like, all right, so we're committing to the idea. Let's start seeing it come to fruition. So without further ado, uh, let's get into this week's Inside Star Citizen prototypes. Here we go. Welcome everyone to another episode of Inside Star Citizen, our weekly look at the behind the scenes development of what my mother calls that video game Jared's making whenever she explains it to her friends. It's quarter three, and if you've been following this show in any of its incarnations for a while now, you know that the road to CitizenCon is a very interesting one for our weekly video content, as we skillfully avoid all the hot topics being saved for the big now two day event and use the, that challenge as an opportunity to explore aspects of our development that might otherwise never get a chance to shine. It's an opportunity this quarter to look at how Rastar is being used to remaster existing UGFs in Alpha 320, uh, to explore racing a little bit, and a, and a new ship that readers of Jump Point Magazine and our social media channels probably already know is on its way. An update to Claudius and how it's being used to create even more immersive environments heading your way. And then a spin around the whole VFX department to see what they're up to. Yes, Virginia, it's true. There will be fire. We can do all this and more as we navigate our journey to the big two days in October. But up this week, and my reason for sitting here at my desk, dumping just a little bit of SCL into our ISC, is to talk to Torsten and Jacob from the EUPU feature team about the prototyping process, how they test design and programming implementations at the earliest stages, and how it relates to munching, an important component of salvage, and my nightly routine just 20 minutes before I go to sleep. <laughs> um, real quick. It's not just game production. Um, right now at Amazon as a senior program manager for Amazon Business, um, we're talking 2024, right? We're already looking at what we call OP1 docs. We're already authoring what we want to do with our time, attention, headcount, manpower, our man hours uh, into the next year. So Q3 
Q3 is like, how are we getting over the hump um, and creating new goals for 2024? And so I think what we just heard Jared talk about was this is preparing for citizen kind right in October. It's the late part of October, but it's really just finalizing what's remaining in 2023, but onward looking into the next year and what they can commit their resources to. So again, not just the gaming industry, this is really across most corporate uh, America. Torsten, Jacob, how you doing people? Doing good. I am fine. Thank you. All right. So we are here talking about uh, a prototyping process. Um, before we get into it, uh, give me the top level, just the just the, the, the like the LinkedIn version answer. What is a prototype and why do we do it? A prototype basically can have several facets in game development. And for us particular, it is always about gameplay. And in this particular case, it is about the technical, the, the, the technical problems that we might face and we might have to solve. So for that, we always use prototypes and uh, playtesting those prototypes is a crucial part in game development where it is mainly used to prove theories, where the theory is either gameplay is fun, does it technically work? And this is basically what, what the, the purpose of a prototype is. Anything you want to add, Jacob? From, from more of a dev perspective, uh, we tend to take what the designer's vision is for uh, gameplay and then we've got to figure out how can we achieve that in the game? Uh, and just as often, that's not crystal clear from the start. So we have to try a few things and see what technical hurdles might be uh, ahead of us that we're going to have to consider for the full development. So what we're gonna do on this week's show, the first of our quarter three shows where things are a little bit different, we are going to look at a feature at the absolutely earliest stage. This is earlier than we've ever shown any feature ever, the prototype phase. Uh, what we're about to show you is not going to look good. It's not going to look pretty. Uh, it's going to be weird poppy and, and buggy. So we're just warning you ahead before you, know, you take the footage and, and, and put it in your YouTube videos. Uh, what is the prototype that we're going to look at right now, Jacob? We're going to be looking at the prototype for uh, Muntring, the next tier of salvage. The idea being we need some way to take apart a larger ship and break it into little pieces so that you can then pick it up in your salvage ships, gain some material from that, and you'll be able to sell that later. But we're going to be looking at just the breaking a ship apart phase, which is what we're prototyping here. All right, so I got it queued up here. Let's take a look at this here. So obviously this is a vulture approaching a gladius. Yep. Um, so for the prototype, we've added in a new monitoring mode, sub-mode to salvage. So all of that hull scraping UI has disappeared. Uh, and we're going down to just what we need for this prototype, which is the ability to break apart a ship, uh, which at the moment is going to look exactly the same as if you blew it up with your guns. But in future, that would look rather different. What's happening right here? I see the bar filling up on the left. Which, which is exactly what I said earlier. Like they're using animation that already exists in the game. They're not gonna, they're not gonna spend resources and, and man hours uh, creating new animation at this point, right? That they're not going to broach that. It, they're gonna copy and paste again, like we saw like last week in Inside Star Citizen, or was it Star Citizen Live? 
last week's video where we saw them create a ship. Um, they're copying assets. Well, okay. Nothing's so, happening with the ship. Yeah, so this is the, the placeholder for the actual gameplay that would happen here. Okay. The design will have some actual gameplay for what you have to do as a player to break the ship apart. But we put in that little placeholder, which is just essentially a timer, a progress bar, based on how big the target is. And, uh, and that is actually on, on purpose, because the, the question that we are asking in this prototype are more technical. That means that we don't have we shouldn't focus on the gameplay aspect, so we should keep the gameplay as minimal or as simple as possible, and then uh, so that we can fully focus on the technical bits of, of the prototype. Okay, so we saw it. We, we saw it broken into some, you know, what looked like normal debris, but now we got to break it into smaller, munchable stuff. So we'll go back to the video here. So breaking it into normal debris is stuff that you've seen before, but. When we have this bigger part, it doesn't come apart into more pieces naturally. So in this prototype, we are uh, just deleting the thing and replacing it with loads of tiny little placeholder pieces to act as the munched apart debris. Uh, what you're also seeing is a prototype for how you will get those pieces into your cargo, which is a little suction field that grabs those little pieces, drags them towards the grinder in the mouth of the vulture, and from there, they're converted into cargo. Those little pieces that we saw are obviously uh, not arted and everything. I want to remind people again, we've, we've literally never shown anything in a prototype face before, face before, so forgive me for reiterating this two or three more times before we're done here. This is designer art, just small pieces to, re to represent the kind of the mass and the, and the size of, of stuff yes. that we might be using. It's even worse, it's Coda art. <laughs> yes, indeed. This is this is the programmer equivalent of a white box test, uh, where I'm not even qualified to make white boxes, so I just rip off other assets that I found in the engine uh, and just slap them together. So that's what this is. And obviously, without being a prototype, there's no VFX, there's no explosions, there's no beams, there's none, none of the things that would mask this transition that would normally happen, you know, so that you don't see the, the pieces just uh, just pop in, you know, like, like like they're currently doing. Yes. Um, all right, so that was done on your local machine, uh, just, you know, you on your workstation doing a local version of, of, the, of the universe here. Uh, the next phase, as I understand it, is to test it in PU conditions. And we're gonna go ahead and start this video because this video is gonna go for a little bit. Tell me what we're doing here. All right, I, I, I have to. In the next couple of seconds, you're gonna watch um, the quote unquote testing it in the PU. And he's going to, um, this individual is going to spawn like spawn ships at landing pads throughout the entire universe to like overload the server. And there's, there's a part of me that's like, uh, or, or just go to really any other server. <laughs> I, I don't want to ever become a podcast that's like bitching or griping or complaining. Uh, never, never want to become that kind of content creator. But uh, it's just you, you can hear the next couple of seconds them talk about. Well, we want to make sure that we get the frame, uh, the, the the FPS, you know, down to to a, a dismal number. I'm like, or just or just log into the game during like a high velocity hour. All right, I'm done. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, I'll tell you what we're doing and then we can discuss later why we're doing that. Exactly. Um, what we're doing right here is uh, I want to test a worst case performance conditions. So I'm chucking in some console commands to load up 
or stream in uh, several different landing zones at the same time. Uh, because otherwise me as just one player on the server, I wouldn't really be loading that much. I wouldn't be stressing the server. So I'm going to stress it quite a lot uh, by loading up as many landing zones as I can think of off the top of my head, basically, uh, until I see that server FPS count uh, go appreciably lower. Um, and then only once I've done that, uh, am I going to step into the actual gameplay test. I also noticed you've upgraded from a Gladius to an 890 jump. Yes, because when I think worst case for breaking a big thing into small things, I want the biggest possible thing, which is going to require lots and lots of small things. Uh, so, yeah, 890 jump is a good candidate for that. Okay. So, <laughs> what are you typing here? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm, yeah, just typing in some comments for the uh, other recipients of this video, because this was... Uh, for those of you on podcast... What you're seeing is almost like a like an MDOS um, screen. It's like a window, and there's code that's just scrolling through on the top left. And he's putting in little inputs, little like phrases of like bad server F FPS. Here's why and what I'm doing in order to yield this outcome. Uh, so just again for the podcast listeners, so you know what's going on. An internal video for you know reviewing stuff. Do you often use console commands to leave notes for people? <laughs> there are other ways, uh, but it's the most convenient. So, all right. Yeah. So, so we've got so we've got the server simulating PU conditions. All the all the landing zones are are loaded at once instead of, you know, streaming yes. in and out like they would normally would. Yes. So it's actually and worse than you would see on a normal PU. Indeed. And we're going to see that immediately that uh, this breaking the ship apart uh, that we saw work so nicely in the editor well, I've really annoyed the server here because all of these pieces are, <laughs> yeah, popping in in a not so great way. And I make a bit of a sarcastic comment about it in the uh, in the console. Um, but uh, yeah, it's important to create these conditions. You know, to to, cr to test these things not just in ideal conditions, not just the ideal universe of your own computer or even the PU when it's like first loads and nobody's in and everything's great. No, in indeed. What I'm testing here is worse than we would hope it ever to be. We don't want it to ever be this bad, but we got to test it because it might be. All right, so here's now where beams would be shooting to... out, starting to break yeah, the ship we... apart. Yeah, there'd be extra gameplay here. There'd be VFX or whatever, but. In the editor version, we saw pretty much as soon as the, the big piece disappeared, all those tiny little bits turned up. Well, it's not going to go that way in, in this situation. We're going to be waiting quite some time for all those little pieces to turn up. Gotcha. And so while we're waiting for those uh, pieces to, to turn up here, um, let's talk about what we learned from uh, what, what we've learned from these tests so far. Um, uh, obviously, there's some form and stuff, but there's also some gameplay implications from what we've seen. Uh, Torsten, you want to talk us through it? Well, I can talk about some parts that we learned from. Right. Sure. So it's so the best thing that you can learn from a prototype is actually everything that goes bad, because this is the stuff that you can then iterate on and make the the gameplay or the the technical stuff even better. So um, from the gameplay perspective, so I will just talk about the gameplay stuff and. Jacob can talk about what we learned from a technical perspective there is um, yeah, from the gameplay we learned that yeah, what about big ships so how for example now you saw the vulture trying to attach to the 890 jump that is a bit 
of a wonky situation and it doesn't feel right. So what what about vultures actually munching bigger ships? So how can we make that an interesting gameplay? Then um, you saw in the first video what happens when uh, the the ship transitions into the smaller bits. So the masking is is a huge topic that we have to solve so that it feels right and you don't notice that one element pops away and another element pops in. So we, we definitely have to mask that. Then uh, what you might have seen in the first part is the conversion of materials. I don't know if you paid attention to the filler station bar that basically fills the SCU crates in the backside of the uh, wheelchair, but that filled drastically faster than it would normally do with hull scraping. That means that so again, for those of you on podcast, the vulture has like two arms, almost like the the it's almost like the Banu Defender, right? So the Banu Defender has like these arms that reach out. The vulture is very similar. So two arms reaching out, and what you're seeing on the screen are these pieces. These uh, it's the debris that's kind of being literally sucked in. It looks like these pieces are being sucked into a mouth, and it's actually underneath you, so you're not you're not really seeing it go anywhere. But it's uh, it's coming into something that's underneath the screen. What you're about to see is the reclaimer, and the reclaimer has a phenomenal uh, animation that kind of shows reaching out and grabbing and kind of doing this uh, this function, you know in a larger scale, obviously, than a vulture. So again, for the for the podcast listeners, um, trying to paint that picture uh, as you're driving and listening to the show. It would be more painful for you to munch because you have to stand up from your seat more often, go down to the filler station, remove the boxes. So this is definitely an uh, issue that we then have to solve because we really don't want to have this gameplay to be more tedious than it's has has to be <laughs> so we have to find a solution how we can make it more like uh, yeah, much nicer for for the player to actually remove those crates there then uh, the, the navigation around the pieces is also something that we notice isn't that fun so we will probably utilize the tractor beams there because we are anyway working on them but maybe that makes it much easier for players instead of flying around and getting the pieces between the fork uh, of the vulture and then having it disintegrate but instead you pulling those the pieces in with a tractor beam uh, the, the fork of the vulture is very limiting in terms of what pieces will fit so this is also something we learned and a big thing is uh, what which already is standing out is how can we make it fun and unique for the reclaimer so we just were looking in the prototype at the vulture and the big question that our team was asking uh, in the end of that prototype was like okay how can we facilitate the the claw and the uniqueness visuals or the uniqueness in general of the reclaimer to actually facilitate that gameplay and like right now you can see the reclaimer's arm reach out and like clamping or munching this massive massive piece of debris and have it stand out and be meaningful and fun all right so a lot of a lot of gameplay 
a lot of ga gameplay implications yes. from just that little prototype. Uh, uh, Jacob, what, what were your what were your takeaways? Uh, from the from the tech perspective, I'm looking at things like the performance and also uh, just um, what am I going to have to account for to achieve the designer's vision here? Uh, and I know that we're going to want things like the time that it takes to destroy something to be somewhat proportional for its size and mass. But from the initial prototype, I could already see that uh, uh, a bigger piece taking longer. Uh, it already takes you know, a few seconds with the Gladius if we're going to scale that up uh, and, and scale up the time as well proportionally. To a, to a big target, we're going to have to think about what equation are we going to use for scaling that so that it doesn't take you ages, uh, to, like sitting there for minutes to, to, to break something apart. Um, i got to think about how I'm going to f uh, hook in the visual effects and the audio, whatever, what dependencies uh, am I going to need to um, make, well, get involved. Speaking of, you know, judging time, uh, the entity system uh, is taking a little bit of time to spawn all the spawn debris. We've been talking, uh, this is still going at the moment. <laughs> Obviously, there's going to have to be some optimization work there with the entity system. This is uh, a kind of what we've got with, with PES uh, is that uh, it's not quite as quick to create entities as before we had PES. Um, and you know, we have all sorts of great stuff that comes with PES, so this is just a small limitation that we have to learn to work around. Uh, but it tells us that gameplay ideas that we had before PES might need some adaptation in order to work efficiently uh, in the, the post-PES world. So yeah, so speaking of which, let's go back to the video. I think we're about to get the entity spawns now. And he's saying this yeah, they should be in the here. background <laughs> while we've should been be here any moment now, yes. There we go. Uh, there we go. And uh, a bit of a flicker as they come in, but they're finally here. So, yeah, this this tells us, well, in this worst-case scenario, uh, this performance is obviously unacceptable. Uh, we're going to have to do something about this. So we are thinking about uh, how can we change our approach, how can we optimize what we've got, discussions in various different directions. Uh, but this is a key takeaway from this prototype, because if it had gone differently, if if we tried this and the pieces turned up in just a few seconds or so, then we'd have known that this approach on the whole was probably acceptable and with a little bit of optimization, it would work. But that's not what happened. Uh, the stuff took minutes to arrive and that means we have to do some more serious rethinking about how we're going to approach this. The vision and the, the basically the acceptance criteria our directors uh, define, they, they, they are still untouched, right? So those are still to be fulfilled. And uh, even the, the overall vision that we as the team defined for how that gameplay should play out, those, those will be like, those are already set in stone because we all agreed on those. But how the actual gameplay then plays and feels, this is still affected by uh, by the prototype. A prototype like this uh, is really perfect for for stepping in early and making sure that every every tick box on our acceptance criteria is met, and uh, we can make a better gameplay out of it. I, I think we we all have a a, a, a real. Uh desire and responsibility towards you know testing these things as often and as early and under as much duress as possible uh to as we work to stabilize the pu and you know, make it a more enjoyable experience going forward so uh torsten uh jacob thank you 
thank you for hanging out with us uh, today. Thank you very thank much. Thank you. Bye. Bye bye. All right. Uh, I, I have to do an immediate response to this. So, oh man. Um, things will take time and the persistent entity streaming that we're all wanting out of this game is a major dynamic that we're having to that we're having to consider right that the developers are having to uh consider and experience so this is where like the prototype process makes so much sense and where it's so uh it, it's so needed because you're going to trial and error you're gonna break it, you're, you should purposefully break the systems in order to find out what needs to happen. And you heard it. You heard it from these engineers um, who said it very explicitly. The persistent entity streaming is something that doesn't exist in any other game. So what they're going to do is they're going to try something and they're going to say, hey, we need a ship to explode. We need to be able to munch on the debris. Let's see what happens. And that's what this process is. Now, now multiply that across everything else that Star Citizen is trying to accomplish. And now you have a little bit more context on on why this game is taking 10 years. I'm not a fanboy. I'm I don't have blinders on. Like I, I there are frustrations that I can share and relate with. Um, but having a better understanding of the why helps me be more patient. And I hope that's the same with you. Um, with the listener, the viewer, I hope that's the same with you. Knowing more from these inside Star Citizens, Star Citizen lives, when Jared comes on with some of the engineers and developers and producers, the editors, right? Like this is, this is the why. So take it, learn it, try, <laughs> uh, try to understand like where this is coming from. So there you go. Um, I've always thought like the salvaging, it's very small right now. You drive out with your your vulture or maybe your reclaimer, but you're not using the reclaimer for its full uh, intention or its full scope. So you go out there with uh, you go out there with a vulture, and it's it's so tedious. It's very tedious, especially if you're doing the salvage missions. You're like, my goodness, can we just like expedite this process? Well, here you go. Here's the why. Here's why they release half of the solution in 319. Here's half the solution. Go have fun. Enjoy it in alpha, which not every game does. You can experience this later in 320 or when 4.0 Pyro comes out. So I'm not going to belabor it anymore. I just, this is why I spend so much time on my podcast showing you Inside Star Citizen. You can watch it yourself. But again, if you're on the road listening to the podcast, there's so much value in listening to these subject matter experts do their craft. Right? Ab absolutely. So last segment for the night and it's my favorite segment of the night let's get into the galactopedia update yeah it's lore time let's go new lore yes Yes, and there's so much. Uh, there's so much to cover. One full article, 20 short articles. I asked a poll over on Twitter. 
Um, of the kind of four subjects that dropped on Tuesday, what excites you the most handedly? It was the systems. So we have two systems to discuss. We have three people, uh, maybe four people, three ships. I forgot the combination. Uh, but let's let's just go straight into it. Here we go. Galactopedia sharing my screen for those of you on YouTube. I encourage you to go back and watch replay for the full lore deep dive. Here we go. Full length article. SSN CATV, long lasting news network. Here is the history of uh, several of the lore articles that we read in the last 17 episodes have come from this news network. So here we go. Here's the here's the story behind it. SSN CATV is a human spectrum network that provides news, political analysis, commentary programs, news magazines, and talk shows. It was founded in 2458 as a result of a merger between former news channels shared in special news television and communications alliance. It was the first news network to broadcast to all UEE star systems. While it currently has hundreds of affiliates and satellite offices, it primarily broadcasts out of Terra or Terra three. Here's the history. SSN TV was the first network originating from Earth, Sol 3, to broadcast to Mars, Sol 4, and was the dominant news network among humans until the discovery of the Croshaw system in 2271. As human territory expanded to other planetary systems, SSN TV's reach narrowed due to limitations in communication technology. Content delivery delays of several days to several weeks were common between systems. Rival Network CA was established on Race Raider 3 in 2398 to combat this gap. Thanks to the Red Ore Systems Cutting Edge Communications Network, CA's reach expanded more quickly than SSN TV's, and the network began to struggle. In 2458, SSN TV accepted a merger proposal from CA, and SSN CA TV was born. SSN CA TV initially transmitted a continuous stream of news hosted by a rotating cast of anchors. It gradually increased its focus on politics purchasing Showdown in 2522 as its Keystone debate program. This shift in content brought high profits with it, enabling the network to open a new headquarters on Cestulus, Davian 2, in 2525. In 2529, SSN CATV provided on-the-ground coverage of the Unified Currency Riot in Jata. Cestulus? <laughs> including its quelling by the United Planets of Earth military. After first contact with the Xi'an in 2530 and discovery of the Tavarn in 2541, the network's content began to gradually lean pro-war and anti-alien. Break. Here is where, if you're a first-time listener, you know that I suck at names. I suck at names. I suck at the Shi'an language, but that's part of the fine. Let's get back into it. <laughs> Upon the ascension of Ivar Messer I uh, to the office of Prime Citizen in 2546, SSN CATV's content took a hard pro-government shift. 
The host and crew of Showdown were fired and replaced after they aired a special episode urging people to act against Messer's consolidation of power. Deacon Messer II became one of the network's prime shareholders in 2601. After this point, SSNCATV became one of the cornerstones of the UEE propaganda machine. In 2630, SSNCATV relocated to an expansive headquarters on Terra. The network slowly began to allow some UEE critical content to air, while still maintaining a pro-messer stance in the majority of its programming. For example, SSNCATV played a pivotal role in discrediting Terran Senator Asan Kieran's reputation during his call for Terran sovereignty in 2638. But it also allowed its pundit and debate programs to feature anti-military and pro-secession guests. During the power struggle between Astrid Messer the seventh <laughs> and Samuel Messer the eighth, reporters on multiple shows stepped too far out of line, harshly criticizing the Messers for their infighting. In 2699, Astrid Messer VII retaliated by conducting mass arrests and censoring over half the network's programming into cancellation. Samuel Messer VIII rescinded the mass censorship upon taking office in 2701, but ordered that all content aired henceforth on the network had to be approved by the Imperator's office. Those imprisoned by Astrid Messer VII were not pardoned and were forced to serve out the remainder of their sentences. The Role and Deposition of the Messer Regime Anonymous SSNCATV insiders began organizing with anti-Messer activists as early as 2702. They aided the resistance in two key ways. They allowed the rebels to pass along encrypted messages via the network's communication arrays and fed them information uncensored by the Messer government. Once such piece of information was once such piece of information was footage from the massacre of Garin II. On eleven april twenty nine seven two, Technicians responsible for the network feed allowed footage of the massacre, along with a message from the resistance group, Tide, to interrupt a broadcast of SSNCATV Nightly News. This broadcast was the inciting incident of the revolution that would eventually depose the Messer regime. Today, SSNCATV hosts a wide variety of news and news-related content. Some of their flagship programs include Pure News Shows, Empire Report, and SSNCATV Nightly News, the pundit-centered debate program Showdown, and the UEE critical talk show Plain Truth. It has satellite offices on most recognized planets in the UEE. And again several several of these beyond the verse star citizen podcast episodes consist of these of these uh channels right and we talked about a few of them we talked about the empire report showdown plain truth you have heard a lot of your time capsule major milestones come across those platforms right so it's kind of it's fun for me <laughs> I'll speak for myself. It's fun for me to learn more about the platform or the medium by which our narrative team is delivering the lore, delivering the message. Super, super interesting. Back to Galactopedia. As you can see on your screen, if you're watching on YouTube, um, the short articles are as follows. Usually your ships are pushed to the very 
bottom. This is the first time that I have seen the four ships um, start the conversation. So Vulcan Legionnaire, the Ares. So three that you're familiar with. And then a fourth that I know you're not called the Cosmo Sloop. So let's get into the Vulcan, the Legionnaire, the Ares, and the Cosmo Loop. Vulcan. The Vulcan is a refuel, rearm, and repair spacecraft manufactured by Aegis Dynamics for the UEE military. First launched in 2594, it was commissioned by the UEE Navy after they requested proposals for a medium-sized support spacecraft. After a successful trial period, the UEEN promoted the ship into active service as its standard frontline support ship during such conflicts as the Second Tavarn War and the Siege of Tiber. Since its introduction, it has been upgraded many times and civilian models of the Vulcan have been offered to the public since the early 27th century. Let's keep going. Legionnaire. The Legionnaire is a medium-sized boarding spacecraft manufactured by Anvil Aerospace for the UEE military. After the military failed to intervene in a uh, piracy incident that led to the deaths of two civilians in 2918, they issued an all-call for any type of technology that would help improve the success rate of boarding operations. Anvil's submission, a new spacecraft designed by lead engineer Grot Taylor, was ultimately selected and debuted in 2922. The Legionnaire's advanced integrated infiltration system, two-in-one docking collar able to connect to all UEE standard apertures, and trio of shield generators streamline the boarding process and decrease the likelihood of accidents. By 2925, the Legionnaire became the centerpiece of the UEE Navy's interception tactics package. A civilian version of the ship entered the market in 2952 during Invictus launch week. Moving on, Ares. The Ares Starfighter is a heavy, which, by the way, is available to buy in the pledge store at this current moment. The Ares Starfighter is a heavy single-seat fighter manufactured by Crusader Industries. Debuting in, debuting in 2949, it was designed from the ground up as a civilian ship to provide security against hostile large spacecraft or capital-class vessels. The Ares chassis is fitted with a modular weapon mount specifically designed for use with the custom-made Bering SF-7 series. The laser-equipped Ion variant is adapted for spearheading attacks, and the Inferno variant is equipped with a ballistic weapon that allows for overwhelming gunfire, fitting it into disabling role into a disabling role during battle. Now, I do not personally have experience flying either the Ion or the Inferno, uh, but it's Crusader Industries. It's got to be a phenomenal ship, right? In my opinion. All right, here we go. The ship that I'm pretty sure none of you have uh, have heard before. The Cosmo Sloop. The Cosmo Sloop was a limited-run luxury leisure spacecraft manufactured by CASE or CAS Aerospace. Launched in 2604, it was the company's debut ship, personally designed by founder and lead engineer Leonard Cass. Its controls were set up with ease of use in mind, 
so that even newly-minded pilots could fly it without facing a high learning curve. Additionally, the hull featured the open circle signet and curved wings that became a hallmark of CAS's future designs and later those of Anvil Aerospace. There you go. It's the backstory of Anvil Aerospace. The Cosmos Sloop was retired the same year it debuted after a period of poor sales partially caused by the then ongoing second Tavaran War. So there's your four ships. And now we can get into the Horus and the Kayukyai systems which is what everybody prefers to read about it's the systems it's the places that you can go and explore that you will be able to go and explore at some point in the life of star citizen so the first one we're going to go to horus system also known as red sun let's get into Ooh, i clicked that twice let's get into horus Serling, Horus 2, Horus Belt, Horus Belt, Horus 3, and let's just stop there. Okay. The Horus system is a planetary system in the UEE that consists of an M-type main sequence star, two terrestrial planets, a super Jupiter, and two asteroid belts. In 2528, nav jumper Marie Sante reported her discovery of the Horus system to the UPE alongside detailed documentation describing its celestial bodies. It was incorporated into the Perry line. That's huge from a lore perspective. It was incorporated into the Perry line when Santi discovered a jump point to the Xi'an owned the Riala system in 2542, after which the UPE closed Horus to non-military personnel. When the Perry line was dissolved in 2793, the UEE government reopened the system and oversaw the colonization of the tidally locked planet Serling, or Horus One. Horus's connection to the Xi'an Empire, once a hindrance to its development, is now the main driver of its economic growth. Serling, or Horus One, is the first planet from the sun of the Horus system, UEE. Tidally locked to its star, its day half is hot and cloudy and its dark half is icy and cold. A permanent wind system that exchanges air from each side keeps the climate from veering into life-threatening extremes and creates habitable conditions along the perpetually twilt, uh, twilight sorry, <laughs> solar terminator. Further colonized by humans after the dissolution of the Perry Line in 2793, it is a center of trade between the UEE and the Xi'an Empire, which is connected to the Horus system via two jump points. Horus 2 is the second planet from the sun of the Horus system UEE. Although it is located in the habitable zone, it lacks any natural bodies of water and does not have an atmosphere that can support life. After the 2947 signing of the Human Xi'an Trade Initiative, some of the old military bases on Horus II left over from the Xi'an Human Cold War were transformed into cargo exchange stations for traders passing through the the Riala and the Kaipoa jump points. There is growing public interest in the potential terraformation of Horus II as trade between the UEE and the Xi'an Empire continues to increase. 
And then you've got Horus spelt Alpha and Bravo. Well, Alpha and Beta. I think it should be Alpha and Bravo, but here we go. Horus spelt Alpha uh, is the first asteroid belt from the sun of the Horus system UE. It is the most active center of mining operations in the system, providing Serling Horus 1 with materials that cannot be extracted planet side without threatening the delicate balance of its environment. In 2911, a small mining outpost set up one of the belt's larger asteroids, had a defective filter, had a defective filter installed during construction, which led to the presence of a constant pall of dust that caused long-term respiratory problems in its inhabitants. A court case following this incident against the filter's manufacturer forced an industry-wide overhaul and regulations compliance. But of additional added you know lore to that uh about a filter being (laughs) being an issue uh to an asteroid belt interesting horus belt beta is the second asteroid belt from the sun of the horus system uee in contrast to its neighboring belt it sees little commercial traffic aside from passing trade ships despite being located closer to the system's only inhabited planet in serling Marie Sante, who discovered the Horus system, kept a personal base on the largest asteroid in the Horus Belt Beta that she utilized when exploring the system's outer reaches. Left abandoned after her 2545 disappearance, the base was rediscovered in 2977 and was declared a cultural heritage site. Horus 3 is a super Jupiter on the Horus system, UEE, and is the most distant planet from its sun, more massive than most other gas giants, it has a high-density atmosphere that compresses the planet, lowering its overall circumference in comparison to low-mass gas giants. Many rest stops and refueling stations orbit Horus 3 in support of travelers and traders that pass through Horus between the UEE and the Xi'an Empire. Let's keep going. I realize I'm 30 minutes past. It's an hour and a half podcast. Let's go. We're having fun. Marie Sante. We've already kind of been discussing Marie Sante, but this is the discoverer of the Horus system. She was a nav jumper, most notable for her discovery of the Horus system, which she named after her ship, Boron Gon or Oberon 1, in 2504. She was the oldest of seven children and was often left in charge of caring for her siblings while her parents worked in the mines or gambled after work. She ran away from home at the age of 14, disappearing from public record until her reappearance in 2528, when she disclosed the discovery of the Horus system to the UPE government. The extensive planetary charts she provided with this report have led historians to believe that Sante first visited Horus up to a decade earlier, but Sante refused to provide any further information. Her 2542 discovery of a jump point to the Xion-controlled Rilaw system prompted the UPE to add Horus to the Perry line and close it to the non-military personnel. Sante refused to leave. She continued to explore Horus, evading and occasionally clashing with the Navy as they tried to push her out of the system. In 2545, she and her ship vanished without a trace. Sante's ultimate fate remains unsolved and is a popular subject of stories and documentaries on Serling, Horus 1. 
So that's Marisante. That's the Horus system. That excites me because you can almost you can almost see stories and missions that will take you to the system to kind of discover what happened to her. What was the fate of Marisante? So you again, you can kind of surmise and project like these stories that they're writing now, the, the the narratives that they're pushing across can probably be what we expect to be playing in the next five to ten years. Wishful thinking, maybe. <laughs> um, for the purpose of the next several articles, it, it, it's it's Xion. So the Kyukyai, I'm gonna call it the Kyukya system. Um, Bear with me as I survive the rest of the Galactopedia updates. <laughs> All right, here we go. The Kayukya system. Also called the Indra system. Okay, there we go. Boom. Done. <laughs> I'm calling it the Indra system from here on out. Uh, there we go. Also called the Indra system is a planetary system in the Xi'an Empire that consists of an A-type main sequence star, a white dwarf, a gas giant, a terrestrial planet, and an asteroid belt. Discovered in standard Earth year 2515 or the Xi'an year 111 or 111.826. When a Xi'an military convoy picked up an anonymous that doesn't look like anonymous. When a Xi'an military convoy picked up an anomalous signature i have no idea what that means during a routine mining escort operation in the yaman system it was incorporated into the Perry line in 2548 when the uee became aware of the indra system <laughs> jump point the uee gave it the military designation indra after an ancient human god of war following the end of the xian human cold war the uee updated their charts to reflect the system's original xian name Kayukya was made into a center of trade between the Shian Empire, the UEE, and the Banu Protectorate, the Protectorate. The largest settlement in the system, located on the moon Puenu, or Kayukya 1 Alpha, is a center of Xi'an youth culture. Alright, here we go. So that is the Kyukya. Kyukya 1, the Puenu, Kyukya 2, Belt Alpha and let's just leave it there all right kyukya one is a gas giant in the kyukya system xian empire and is the closest planet to its suns orbited by a far-reaching set of rings composed of rock and ice the site of the binary stars at the center of the kyukya against the dramatic backdrop of these rings has been a recurring subject in xian poetry since it was first discovered in Xi'an year 111.826, or standard Earth year 2515. The Xi'an government requires that any new space stations built in support of inter-system trade must be placed in orbital positions that will not mar the natural beauty of the rings. All right, moving on to the moon, Puenu, or the Kyukya 1 Alpha. It's the moon of Kyukya 1, Xi'an Empire. During the Xi'an Human Cold War, it was the site of a Xi'an military base that was used as a launch point for scouting missions into the UEE territory. In 2798, a few years after the dissolution of the Perry Line, the Xi'an government converted the base into a hub to facilitate trade between the Xi'an Empire, the Banu 
<laughs> Protectorate, goodness, and the UEE. The free contact between these civilizations has fostered the emergence of a Xi'an youth movement that rejects traditional values and embraces trends from other cultures. Kyukya 2 is the second planet from the suns of the Kyukya system, Xi'an Empire, due to its acutely tilted axis. It experiences extreme variation in its seasons. For nearly a quarter of each year, the suns shine directly over one of the poles, plunging the rest of the planet into a lengthy and dark winter. When the suns reappear in the sky during the spring, they generate powerful heat and storms that cause catastrophic floods and lay waste to the landscape. Kyukyak Belt Alpha is an asteroid belt in the Kyukyak system, Xi'an Empire. Some of the larger asteroids are occupied by members of the Yua, the professional class of criminals who operate with the conditional approval and oversight of the Xi'an government. People conducting inter-civilization business at the trade hub Pienpui.alpha on Pui Nu sometimes hire information dealers, bodyguards, mercenaries, loan collectors, or other Yua who operate from the Kyukya Belt Alpha when the need arises. Keep going. All right, Errol Navis, hero to accountants everywhere. Let's take a look at who Errol Navis was. Errol Navis was an accountant and amateur explorer best known for his 2861 discovery of the Oso system. That's big. That's important to lore. Born on Cartena, or Kano 2, to two geo-engineers, he became an accountant at Schubert Interstellar in 2843 after completing a mathematics degree. Later attributed to a childhood spent in a series of confined, environmentally controlled bases, Navi Navis, described himself as harboring a strong desire to live in a world with open skies and breathable atmosphere. When Shubin denied his transfer request to Terra, Navi purchased a small ship, which he used to take himself and his young daughter Oso on weekend trips to exotic locations. During one of these trips, his scanners picked up an anomaly in the outskirts of the Castra system that turned out to be a jump point to an undiscovered system. He used the reward money from the UEE government to buy a home on Terra and start a business as an accounting consultant. So that's cool finding out that he named the Oso system after his daughter. I would totally do that. My daughter's name's Evelyn. I don't know about a system being called Evelyn, but... I would totally, totally do that. All right, we have three more articles. Dehansel Kosoko, uh, Nise Ruoth, and Kawakoya. Like I said, bear with me. We're going to get through this somehow. <laughs> Last three articles. Dehansel Kosoko was an explorer and nav jumper best known for his 2539 discovery of the Gerzel system. Born on Cestalus, he joined a nad jumping crew in 2529 when he answered a local job posting. In 2538, he suffered a starship crash that required eight months of inpatient care and resulted in the loss of one of his legs. 
The insurance payout from the crash left him with enough money to purchase a new ship, which he did the day he was discharged from the med station where he'd been recuperating. He headed to the then Nivellen system and began scanning. Three weeks later, he picked up a minute, uh, minute traces. He picked up minute traces of a strange signal, which upon close investigation proved to be a jump point to a previously unknown planetary system. Kosoko, or Kosoko reported his discovery to the UPE government and requested that the system be named Odara after his aunt. It was renamed Gerzel and added to the Perry line in 2542 when the Rila Odara jump point was discovered. Kosoko remained a nav jumper until his death in 2581 due to a malfunction in his ship's air recycling system. That sucks. <laughs> what a horrible way to go. What what a horrible way to die. A ship's air recycling system error. Bummer. It's not a very sexy way to go. All right, here we go. Names that I can't pronounce. Uh, Niseruath. Why not? Was an amateur explorer and a historian best known for her Xi'an year 111, 847, or standard Earth year 2542. Discovery of the Gerzel Rila jump point. The youngest daughter of one of the House Ruoth's matriarchs, she was expected to follow in the footsteps of her family and became a political historian. However, she found she preferred exploration and spacecraft piloting. During her time in the Potong Pu, she served as a scout for the Xi'an military and would explore the outskirts of whatever system in which she was posted during her breaks. This hobby led her to discover a previously unknown jump point from the Rila system to the UPE-controlled Gerzel system, then named Odara. She, uh, or her appearance in Odara caused an increase of tensions between the Xi'an Empire and the UPE. So while she was commended for her discovery, she was reprimanded for her carelessness in entering the jump point and stripped of her duty as a pilot. She served the remainder of her time in the Potong Pu as a file clerk. After returning to her house, she took up the family business but obtained her own ship and continued flying whenever she could. She won the Koa e Koalai in 111, 1112 Standard Earth Year 2881. Yeah, I know that's a race. We're about to cover that. The Koa e Koai. Koalai. It's one of the last articles. It's actually the next one we're going to read. It's, it's the history of a race. So let's get through it. The Koa I Koa I Ia, whatever, is a spacecraft race, goodness, that combines marathon flights with physical endurance. Held every Xi'an year in alternating locations around the Xi'an Empire, it was first competed in Standard Earth Year 2341 in the Hyoten system. Before each race, the Koa I Koa I Governing body chooses checkpoints and destinations that are not revealed until the race begins. There's always a mixture of locations in space and in atmosphere. Once the race is underway, pilots receive the coordinates of their first checkpoint and do not learn their second checkpoint until reaching the first, or their third checkpoint until they reach the second, and so on. Pilots must coordinate with their pit crews about when and where they will rest, repair, and refuel. 
and must choose strategic periods in which to lower their metabolism and extend their flying time without reaching a state of exhaustion. This continues until only one racer is left, which can vary anywhere between 250 standard Earth hours. The pilot who has reached the most checkpoints is declared the winner. Other non-Shian species were allowed to participate for the first time in standard Earth year 2947. So I would be interested to learn if that's actually becoming something that either exists in the PU or Arena Commander. I kind of like the concept. I, I like the idea of, of kind of like the, an endurance race. It kind of reminds me of Gran Turismo. I remember there being like endurance races in Gran Turismo or something along those lines. So kind of a neat little, I don't know, tie-in, but a variance to maybe like a basic or a mundane, you know, racing experience. So very exciting. And that is it for this week's Galactopedia update and for episode... 18 of Beyond the Verse Star Citizen podcast. Public service announcement. We are not going to be airing episode 19 next week. We are taking next week off. Uh, my family and I have a family vacation we're going to go on. Of course, they deserve my utmost attention um, for that week. So we will be reconvening two weeks from now for episode 19. And we have a special surprise, not in the month of August, but in the month of September uh, with another content creator. Can't wait to tell the community more about that as we get closer. I hope this finds everybody well. Have a great night, and I'll see you in two weeks. You've been listening to Beyond the Verse, Star Citizen podcast with your host, Solus. Join our in-game organization, Soul Provision, by applying at www.robertspaceindustries.com forward slash orgs forward slash provision. You can get involved in the conversation with your questions, comments, or emotional outbursts by emailing us at starcitizenbtv at gmail.com. Watch us live on Thursdays, 8 p.m. Central at youtube.com forward slash at starcitizenbtv and follow the conversation over at Twitter and Instagram both at forward slash star citizen btv once again thank you for joining us we hope this finds you well until next time safe travels as you traverse beyond the verse